Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. Um, I am very excited today. Uh, this is very special. I have two guests. Uh, I have uh, John Verveke returning for his third appearance. And for the first time ever, I have Pastor Paul Vanderclay. Um, it's funny, I, I was, I told Paul that, you know, this is the first time you've ever been on my channel. And he had, he, he was surprised to, to know that, because uh, we've talked so many times, but mainly over on, on his channel. Um, so uh, I, I guess to introduce Paul, Paul is a pastor of Livingstone's Church, uh, Christian Reformed Church in Sacramento, California. Um, you have your own YouTube channel that uh, is hard to classify, some combination of philosophy, theology, cultural commentary, and et cetera. Um, and uh, so I, I'm excited to, to have Paul here. Paul had commented on my last conversation with John that you wanted in. And so uh, be careful what you wish for, because here you are. Um, and so, and John, as I, I, I this is, uh, in case anyone's coming to this episode for the first time, uh, Dr. John Verveke is a professor of cognitive psychology at the University of Toronto, um, and he also has his own YouTube channel, um, and uh, he, I, especially I would recommend his series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which is a, a 50 video series um, kind of on the history of philosophy and intellectual history and psychology and cognitive science and sort of how we have found ourselves in the situation that we're in. So um, first off, welcome to both of you. Uh, I'm very glad to have you. And I think that this conversation will be sort of picking up on a lot of conversations that have already happened. Um, if you're just coming to this one for the first time, there's a decent amount of homework, but hopefully it'll be interesting as the standalone thing itself. But this is sort of in the stream of conversations that I've had with John, that John and Paul have had with each other, and also other people like Paul Ann Leitner and Jonathan Peugeot and a whole bunch of other people. So I sort of view this as kind of continuing in the stream of a lot of those conversations. Um, so I guess to sort of give a little bit of background on things that we've talked about and, and lay the groundwork for what we could talk about this time, um, I feel like part of the conversation, the first conversation that John and I had was a lot about Neoplatonism. Um, John self-identifies as, uh, as, as strongly influenced and even somewhat in the Neoplatonic tradition. Um, and I, I've had interest in Neoplatonism mainly to try and figure out exactly where the Trinity came from and why. And Neoplatonism has a, an important part of that story. But at, that was sort of my original reason for looking into it. But then it eventually became interesting enough in its own worth, I guess, to keep learning and exploring about that. Um, and I think the interesting part that our conversations have revolved around is sort of the intersection between, um, I guess, science and especially evolution and how that relates to Neoplatonic ideas in our current situation. And sort of bridging the gap between, I guess, science and faith a little bit, but also doing this in a dialogue where John is a, uh, you, you call yourself a, a non-theist, you are influenced by and very knowledgeable of the Christian tradition, um, but you are not in the Christian tradition, whereas 
Paul Vanderclay, Paul Antleitner, myself and Jonathan Peugeot are often sort of representing the Christian side of the dialogue in these discussions. Um, but these, these dialogues are, are not debates. They're very much in the spirit of um, mutual learning and exploration. And I think that John, more than anyone, has done a good job modeling how that process works and what that looks like. Um, and a good dialogue, you know, it takes a little bit of difference to have a dialogue be interesting, um, but it also takes a fair amount of overlap for a dialogue to be productive, and it takes um, uh, good faith for it to go in a positive direction and not a negative direction. And so I feel like the old dialogues between Christians and atheists are sort of wearing out. I think, um, John, you sort of said in your recent conversation with Paul Anleitner that, um, that the debates between like say William, William Lane Craig and Sam Harris seemed somewhat futile, yeah. right? They might have millions of views on YouTube, um, but what exactly they accomplished, where they went, how much they increased mutual understanding is, uh, question, is questionable. Um, but something brought people to millions of people to watch those things. Something kept millions of people listening. Um, but at the end, it sort of seemed like a dead end. And I would say that there's sort of a, a new focus happening in, um, I guess, sort of Christian, non-Christian dialogues that I think is very different than the old tenor. And I think that there uh, is interesting new overlap, but also interesting new um, points of disagreement. Um, and I've sort of made, I guess, I, over the last two conversations, I've built up something almost like an evolutionary argument for Christianity. And this is sort of ironic, I guess, for me, I, I grew up in a, in a creationist church that, you know, very much distrusted Darwin, very much viewed that as sort of a um, uh, not only wrong, but a dangerous influence on American culture and the culture of the West, and we connect it with Nazism and stuff like that, and that Christianity was very much defined as in opposed to Darwin's theory of, of evolution, and that was sort of I, I was that feisty kid in high school that uh, read all of those intelligent design books and would pester my public high school biology teacher with questions that he couldn't answer and viewed myself as somewhat, you know, proud to be able to do that sort of thing. Um, but then uh, in, <laughs> Paul's laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I, I guess in college, I sort of I don't know, I guess I changed my mind on that topic. And that was one of the biggest sort of deconstruction, reconstruction things that happened to me, especially early on. Um, and honestly, I would say the main reason why that happened was that I met Christians in college that believed in evolution, whose faith I respected. I think that was probably the biggest ingredient for me changing my mind on that. In addition to like going to a museum and being like, okay, why do whales have hip bones? All right, that doesn't really make sense at some level. Okay, but, and and so I then like, I, I've always been fascinated by evolution, but I, I still honestly struggle to fit it in with Genesis and Christianity. And Paul, you, you've said that that's one of the, one of the big things that motivates your interest is how do we deal with the Bible, which is this very strange book from a very different culture 
that had very different views of the world in terms of cosmology and geology and biology and all sorts of things. How do we interact with that sort of stuff in our, our current culture? And like, well, even though I changed my mind on evolution, I still didn't have like comfortable answers to all of the questions that that brings up. And when Jordan Peterson started talking about Genesis, I felt like he captured my attention because he was helping me make progress on those questions that had been lingering unhelped for a long time. So I guess, you know, the, the evolutionary argument for Christianity would be something like, you know, humans evolved to be a very social animal. Uh, we came from primates that lived in small social groups, um, probably only a couple hundred max. Um, through language and cognitive abilities, uh, we are able to expand our group size so that we could cooperate uh, together larger amounts of resources, control larger amounts of territory, and compete with other groups that were smaller than our groups. Um, one of the key ingredients for holding groups together was religion. Um, religion seems to be a near human universal. Virtually every culture that we're aware of that has survived for any amount of time has had some amount of religion. Religion seems to serve purposes of unifying a group. It seems to serve purposes of helping control moral and ethical behavior within the group. Um, but religion can vary a lot. There's sort of similarity and differences between all the religions of the world, just as the same way that there's sort of similarity and differences between language. I can say that Chinese is a language, Hindi is a language, English, English is a language. They share this common structures of language, but there are also differences in grammar, vocabulary, etc. So same with religion. There seems to be pattern and variation on different religions. Okay, so if religions help groups be of humans be better groups, then seemingly a religion could be better or worse at that function, if that's one of its purposes. And over time, Christianity has seemingly, in a very weird manner, uh, beaten out most of its rivals, although it, it should be noted that it hasn't won total victory. Um, but it through means that we would commend uh, and means that we wouldn't really commend, uh, Christianity has spread. And that seems to suggest that there's something true about it based off of its sort of evolutionary success. And that all humans seemingly have this religious hardware in their minds and that it needs to be utilized and directed and organized somehow and Christianity seems to be the best way of doing that that we can see. Um, so that would be something like an evolutionary argument for Christianity. And this is, you know, I'm not unique in coming up with this. I feel like Adam Friended has said similar things. You can almost see the roots of some of this idea. Like David Sloan Wilson is an evolutionary biologist who has laid down some of the roots of kind of this idea that I'm working with but it also has some weaknesses. So I feel like that's one of the, I feel like this is going to be something like the centerpiece of Christian non-Christian dialogue uh, in going forward. And in a weird way, when I was growing up in the nineties and two thousands, evolutionary biology was used against Christians and Christians either had to find some way of harmonizing it or some way of kind of undermining evolutionary biology. But I feel like one thing that's happened in the recent decades is that the tables have really turned in terms of 
seeing that religion isn't just like a competitor to science, right? In the William Lane Craig, Sam Harris days, science and religion were competitors for the same slot. But if you expand religion to be more than just something that's truth claims about the universe, truth claims about cosmology and origins and stuff like that, but instead of it just being something that you state to be true, you say it's something that you do, it's something that you act out, it's also something that you do with other people, it's something that other people do with you, it's also something that competitor groups might do differently, then it changes the topic and then I think that evolution was also overly narrowly focused on genetics and biology, and that it didn't have a good way of incorporating things like culture and or there, there was sort of a common belief that like evolution explained how humans got to 10,000 BC, and then from 10,000 BC onwards we're in history, and history is somehow decoupled or detached from the process of evolution. It, that doesn't happen anymore. It's interesting for thinking about what life was like on the savanna. But when we're wondering about why did uh, the Chaldeans, you know, lose to the Persians? Well, that's just history. That's that's not evolutionary biology. But I think that that sort of idea is slipping away, and that the uh, that biology is having to increasingly focus on what you might call sort of the soft layer of human cultural transmission that is in our minds and in our behavior as much as the uh, transmission that's in our genetics. And that this sort of brings increasing focus on what exactly is religion, what is its role, and how does the success of a religion, what credibility does it give to the metaphysical claims of the successful religions by virtue of the fact that they are successful? Are they just sort of these self-deceptive um, mind viruses that accord fitness, but they do it in a way that has no connection to the truth of the matter? They just have a way of getting groups to behave in the way that causes them to succeed, even though they're basically fanciful, deceptive lies? Or is it that the groups that are successful are successful because what they are saying is true, or is it somewhere in the middle? And Brett Weinstein has distinctions between metaphorical truth and whatever the opposite of metaphorical truth is, literal truth, scientific truth, something like that. Um, and so you could say religions like Christianity, they make up things like heaven and hell and all of this theology to kind of positively motivate and negatively motivate behavior and groups and yeah, it works, but you know that isn't because heaven or hell is real or because Jesus rose from the dead. It's because these things hyperactivate or, or whatever motivate behaviors into doing what works, even though it's not based off of the truth of the matter. It's basically, it's like a Santa Claus sort of thing, right? We use Santa Claus to scare our kids into good behavior for the couple months leading up to Christmas, and it has some amount of functional success but it uh, is not because Santa Claus is up at the North Pole, um, you know, watching everything you do and keeping a list of who's naughty and nice, right? So I, I guess I'll, I'll stop my intro monologue there, but I feel like this is sort of the place where um, I feel like, or at least in my mind, this is, these are the questions that I've been, I've been wrestling with. And I feel like, John, you've been an excellent conversation partner in this, and I'm excited to see what Paul has to say, because I think 
Paul, you won't be surprised by anything that I've just said. I feel like a lot of the, the arguments that I laid down are sort of in the air um, and I'm just kind of collecting and, and trying to articulate them. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pass the microphone to whichever of you wants to pick it up next after that. I'd like to pick it up next because um, um, I think that there's a uh, there's a, an argument that I've been working on. It's emerging, and I think this is now a place to try and see if you two can help me draw it out and uh, assess its uh, its pertinence, its relevance, and perhaps its plausibility. Plausibility. <clears throat> um, and so I think the evolutionary argument for Christianity bumps into the problem that you said, Sam, and you know, this is, Brett and I are supposed to talk, but we keep missing uh, our calendars, I refuse to intersect. Um, so, um, and, and this is sort of Brett's notion of metaphorical truth. What metaphorical truth means, it's, it, it's an acknowledgement without an explication of that there's multiple ways of knowing, and those ways of knowing work in terms of different standards of contact with reality, there's truth, but functions, you don't talk about if functions are true or false, you talk about if they function, are they powerful, do they intervene? So it's possible for something to be propositionally false, but procedurally or functionally powerful. And, 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 and that, right, that's, that's the gist of the argument. So part of what I think people are invoking when they invoke that distinction are the four ways of knowing uh, without uh, adequately explicating uh, their psychology and their epistemology, et cetera. So I think, I think uh, that invocation in and of itself, while promising, is still promissory, and it needs to develop uh, this much more in order for that argument to get clearer. <clears throat> if you follow that out, uh, you follow out the possibility that we could say things that are propositionally false that are functionally powerful. Um, and then that means that there is no direct translation between uh, the functionality and uh, perhaps our metaphysical claims. I believe, Sam, that's the way yeah. you're articulating. So there is no clear inference. Look, Christianity works too, therefore Christianity is true. Um, um, any more than, look, the placebo works and therefore it really is medicine rather than the placebo, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. we, we know that there is no valid inference there. But on the other hand, we should point out, well, but there's an issue. The issue is it's not a good thing for your functionality um, uh, for your power and your truth to be disconnected from each other. One way of pointing to a lot of key problems in our culture is precisely the disjointedness, the uncoupledness we have between the pursuit of power and the pursuit of truth, for example, in our society. So leaving those two things uh, um, disconnected or perhaps even antagonistic towards each other, I think is very dangerous. And so I think what you need is you need something that bridges between the functionality and the phenomenology and the ontology. So it bridges between how it's functioning for you psychologically, how it may structure your experience, and then how it may disclose the nature of reality. And I wanna make a proposal here um, because it's a proposal I've been working on and it's a historical argument, but it also fits in with the structural argument. I think the thing that did that for Christianity that did that, that made that work, that took, look, it's functioning within, right? Let's, uh, I don't want to be reductive here. And so I'm just using the terms you're using, right? It fu it's functioning culturally, it's binding us together as a group, and it's definitely functioning psychologically. Our phenomenology, our experience is meaningful, right? 
and then there were ontological claims. Now, initially, it's it, the, the Bible is kind of sort of vague on the ontology, right? Uh, and so I, I don't I don't want to misrepresent the Bible. I'm not doing that, okay? I want that really clear. I'm not doing that. I'm not attributing things, okay? The Bible says really provocative and strange things about ontology, but the Bible says provocative and strange things about sex. I mean, the, <laughs> the Bible's just like that. That's the kind of book it is. Uh, and that, that's said with respect. That's not said with any kind of an antagonism at all. Okay, I think the thing that did that, that bridged between the phenomenology and functionality of Christianity and claims to a plausible ontology was precisely Neoplatonism. I think that was its historical role. I think that's what it did. I think it made the case, because you can make a case. Here's how you make the case. You point to a particular kind of functionality, the functionality of intelligibility. And then you say, note, there's a deep connection between how intelligible things are and how plausibly we can judge them to be real. And therefore, I can go from the functionality, the psychological functionality, to the functionality of intelligibility to the ontology. That's what Neoplatonism offered. I think that's why it got taken up. But here's the point. Neoplatonism was taken up for similar reasons in, the, uh, in other religions. It's taken up into Islam, into Sufism. It's taken up into Judaism, into Kabbalah. There's now clear evidence that it's interact, it, it probably interacted with forms of Buddhism um, in this way. Um, so uh, Thomas Plant has a book about, we had the Silk Road of trade, but we also had the Silk Road of cultural overlap. And the thing that allowed all of these people not to agree, but to work together in good dialogue was Neoplatonism. It was sort of the common space that people that the different religions could come into and talk about. It was, if you'll allow me uh, to borrow language from both Paul and my, myself, it was a shared arena in which people could come in and the grammar of that arena was well understood. They didn't, they didn't know, there was very little, uh, you know, attempts to convert, but it was, no, no, we, we, we can equally recognize wisdom and virtue in each other because we can recognize people's orientation towards what's true good and beautiful because of this shared neoplatonic framework so although they wouldn't share their particular metaphysics right uh, in depth uh, because there'd be differences like you know islam is non-trinitarian christianity is trinitarian things like sometimes. that sometimes well, yes, yeah, sorry, Sam. That was presumptuous. I meant statistically predominantly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, uh, so, sorry, that, that was really unintentional, my friend. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so um, Neoplatonism um, argued precisely that uh, because it tapped into something that I think they all did share. Um, all the religions do share the functionality you mentioned or, the, or for the very evolutionary arguments you give, they would not be around. So there's something highly functional about it. But what they did, what Neoplatonism helped people say is that that functionality is not just sort of survival. It's not just sort of biological and group uh, you know, survival. There's, uh, there's a functionality in the cultivation of wisdom and virtue, which are properly understood ultimately as orientations to what's true, good, and beautiful, that's there. And that functionality, what I'm calling the functionality of intelligibility, has to say something about reality. Because if the functionality of intelligibility does not direct us towards reality, then science itself is also completely undermined and destroyed. This is the key Neoplatonic move. 
If you deny the functionality of intelligibility, and if you deny that our ontology is built around understanding that as profoundly as we can, then you destroy the very fabric within which science works and the set of presuppositions that it needs in order to operate. It needs in order to operate. And I think this is why Neoplatonism was the philosophical silk road of the ancient world. Now, I want to be very clear about what I'm not proposing. I'm not proposing we can go back to ancient Neoplatonism. We can't. I keep saying it on my tombstone, neither nostalgia nor utopia. We can't go back, right? And there is ancient some... Neoplatonism was kind of weird too. It, it yeah, some, there's it a lot of weird, weird stuff. <laughs> there, there, there's weird stuff. And, and the thing is that the weird stuff is a lot of the variation that gets introduced and it gets called out very much like you would see. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that evolution doesn't like push towards perfection or something like that. Um, uh, it produces, it, 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 there, it, it, because it doesn't make any sense to say what's the final form of life. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but what it does is it, it can move up levels. And this is part of what I, you and I were starting to explore, Sam. You can move from evolution, and this is even coming up in biology right now. You can move from evolution of a trait, like strength or height or speed, to evolution of a meta trait, the evolution of evolvability. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm, what I'm proposing is that Neoplatonism w- was sort of had moved in that direction in a powerful way. Um, I think we need a post-Neoplatonic, uh, naturalistic, meaning very consonant with our science, like the Neoplatonism of the ancient world was consonant with its sciences. We need that. We need a post-nominalist, naturalistic Neoplatonist. So we're, we're adding lots of N's and P's to our Neoplatonism. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, what am I not proposing? I'm not proposing um, a totalitarianism of this. What I'm proposing is exactly this, that this is, if we could, first of all, this is something we could all craft together because we could bring in variation and then put different selective pressures on it. If you allow me the evolutionary argument, we could do collective relevance realization and we could build this new space in which we could carry out dialogos with each other. Not, it's not an attempt to say, no, we're going to replace all the religions with this. That's ridiculous. But Neoplatonism seems to have proven that it has this functionality. It can enter into profound reciprocal reconstruction with other deep uh, wisdom traditions and religions. It did it with Christianity. Interestingly, it did it with Christianity, with Eastern Orthodoxy, and then with Catholicism sort of independently back through with Aquinas right? It, it, it does it with Islam. It does it with Judaism. It looks like it, there's increasing evidence. It, 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 it did, and it is, now, it is now doing it with um, Buddhism. You can see that also prefigured in the Kyoto school. I, I, I'm a little bit, I, I don't know enough of the history about Taoism and uh, uh, Hinduism. I do know that there have been fruitful sort of um, uh, discussions about the relationships between things like Vedanta and Neoplatonism. Um, Arthur versus Lewis has said it's pretty much the spiritual grammar of the West. And one last note, it was the driver, hidden driver before, behind the first scientific revolution, the Neoplatonic framework, especially Renaissance Neoplatonism, and also the second scientific revolution with Einstein and quantum mechanics. The Neoplatonic framework gave people that dojo in which they could develop, right, the new ways of moving in thought that allowed for the second scientific revolution. So I'm recommending that this is how we could bring uh, all of this together, that Neoplatonism has had a history of providing what is needed, which is a bridging argument 
between the functionality and the ontology. Um, it has a proven track record of doing that, uh, both within the ancient religious world and even within the current, current modern scientific world. And that's the proposal I wanted to put on the table of how to, uh, how to, I, 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 this will probably sound paradoxical, how to potentially strengthen your own position, but also strengthen the, uh, allow it to enter into a stronger dialogos with other people's positions. That's a bold proposal. <laughs> oh, wow, I, I, I said I wanted to try it out here. I wanted to try it out with, uh, with people that I, I respect and I can enter into fellowship and that nevertheless, um, uh, you know, have significant differences. Um, so I'll be quiet. I wanna hear what you have to say. Well, it's, it's an interesting proposal there's there are different there are different aspects to it that are interesting and i you know it's one of i i assume part of the reason we haven't gotten the um the sequels to awakening from the meaning crisis is that um the the process by which you put out that series required things that COVID has disrupted i yes, assume yes, yes yes and so i i look forward to you fleshing out this proposal you know i i was no, so yesterday I started working a little bit on the recent Rebel Wisdom video about, you know, the sort of the religious aspect of the pandemic endgame that much. David put out. I thought that was an excellent, excellent video. And, um, you know, there are a couple of clips that he had of, of, of some work that you did with them in that video. And so there's there's sort of a historical aspect to a proposal like this, which yeah which would want to track the um, not just the the presence of something that we can identify as Neoplatonism and um, in terms of a historical framework that this and it's it's tremendously difficult talking about these things because yeah, yeah, yeah. even when we use a word like Neoplatonism or Christianity yeah. or all these words it's like well what what's the what's the thing underneath that is, that is the essence of the tribal or philosophical schools label that we're using. And because I think, as, as Sam said, Neoplatonism, I haven't done a lot of work on Neoplatonism, but since John, you've been elevating that in the conversation, you know, been you know, looking at some more things and tinkering with some more things, you know, it's, it's in some ways the, one way to think about it would be sort of the third, the third instantiation of Platonism. There's, let's say, Platonism, and then Middle Platonism, and then Neoplatonism, yeah. and and that itself, those who would identify within that tradition would then likely appropriate it um, in different ways yes. as history continues to move forward. And you know, Christianity does exactly that same thing, uh, even though. You know, many people who go to church might easily imagine that what they're doing in their air-conditioned North American uh, spaces is exactly the air of Paul of Tarsus, let's say. <laughs> and even though I, I imagine that Paul of Tarsus lived in a very different world than most of us do today, but yet there's something we imagine that there's sort of a, I was going to say a narrative thread, but that word gets interesting too. But there's a, yeah. there's somehow some thread that ties 
Jesus, Paul of Tarsus. And again, I, I had lunch with Jacob, one of our um, Hasidic Jew on the Discord server, talking about Jesus he loves, but Paul he hates. And, you know, Jacob so there's... also loves Neoplatonism, too. Yes, uh, yes, and... he does. He does. So I, it's a, that's a very interesting proposal, and I'm, I'm quite excited to hear more. Yes, I understand it's promissory. <laughs> no, no, I get that. I get that. And that's not, and there's no denying the significant role of Neoplatonism in, let's say, even my own sub-tradition of Christianity, yes. which is the Reformed tradition, which, which yes. very much leans on Augustine, of yes. course. Yes, of course. So it's a it's a very interesting proposal, and I, I guess my initial questions would be to to more greatly define, if we could, the what we're talking about with respect to the arenic, let's say, arenic images of Neoplatonism that afforded, on one hand enough intelligibility between often warring traditions, yeah. although, you know, Islam and Christianity and Judaism weren't always, you know, they had, they had major periods where places in the world, the three, the were, three could, Alito. yeah, that's right. And um, it, because part of what, part of what, part of what challenges us in these conversations, and this is, so I just made a little introductory video that uh, that's releasing at the same time we're having this conversation this morning. But I I didn't get a chance to the portion in that your of your conversation with Rebel Wisdom, where we get into you know we have a hermeneutic of suspicion. We get into all these two level theories yeah. where on one hand we say well there here's Christianity at the top with its narrative, with its tradition, with its ritual, all the things that you know, three-dimensional historical human beings need to have the functional religion to afford the benefits that Sam just sort of outlined in terms of what religion has to offer. But is there is there something beneath the surface and how we conceptualize that? We usually think of it as an idea. Um, you know, lately I've been dabbling more with the question of a spirit, um, something a little mm -hmm. bit more Mm -hmm. agentic that yeah. is that is sort of the thing underneath that is working and then we're always we're always then struggling to deal with the thing itself the essence versus the how that then gets manifest in all sure. of the cultural um and historical dynamics that goes on in terms of how we flesh these things out in our in our performative lives so that would that would be just an, an initial thought on the on the bold proposal. I, I like I like bold proposals. I think the world needs more bold proposals, but bold yeah. proposals in an environment where where we are practicing this kind of dialogos to me is especially exciting. Where usually bold proposals are met with you know hostility and anger and you know <laughs> entrenchment. So I, I I love it. Well, just before Sam uh, replies, I I want to say. Uh, the boldness of the proposal is explicitly and always should be explicitly in the service of furthering dialogues. That is explicitly why I'm making the proposal, and I'm arguing that it has that explicit functionality. And, and that, and so those two, those two points are, 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 are it, it, I think, 
I'm arguing they're inseparably bound together. And the proposal is in the service of, well, how could we ground, how could we deeply, uh, you know, trans-historically, trans-culturally, trans-religiously ground dialogos? Uh, because we seem to be, and I, 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 I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be presumptuous or pretentious here, but there seems to be agreement about the value of this and the need for this. And so that it, I just wanted to say that is part of the proposal. And uh, this goes back to something, uh, uh, just just to remind, about trying to replace uh, the courtroom with the courtyard. And I think of the courtyard being uh, the, 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 the furniture is arranged and the plants are disposed in the courtyard by Neoplatonism. It's sort of the feng shui, mixing metaphors crazily here, of the courtyard so that people feel comfortable to enter into it and enter into dialogos within it. And I'm proposing that as a space alternative to the courtyard where we have adversarial debate as how we try to resolve these issues. And I think Harris and Craig or Harris and even Peterson, Jordan, that was still taking place in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. It was a courtroom of public opinion, but that doesn't really matter. It was still the courtroom. And I'm trying to say, no, no, there is a deep way we deep, deep way we can ground the courtyard and draw people in where they will be drawn into it and they will feel comfortable in it and they will feel enabled in it and they will be drawn into dialogos. That, that, so that's the, I just want to be clear. I, I'm, I'm happy to discuss, you know, and even when it's appropriate debate, the arguments around right around it but that is the intent that's the purpose i'm proposing mm -hmm. yeah so on on my youtube channel i've been doing a church fathers series where i kind of go through the early church fathers with my um, buddy hank um about once a month and uh we are doing origin of alexandria right now yeah. and i've done yeah. three out of four uh of our videos of or on origin of alexandria and he so origin is is fascinating because it, it seems to me highly historically plausible that he had the same philosophical teacher as Plotinus and that and, and he and Plotinus met too yes yeah. and, and they don't talk about each other very much and no. like maybe it wasn't obvious back then how important each of them would be and yes yeah, or, yeah. Or, but maybe it was I don't know but um, and origin was actually, I think, something like 15 years older than Plotinus, if I'm getting my dates correct. But uh, the and and so there. So I've been knee deep, you know, reading books like Origins on First Principles. Shout out to Sherry. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm going to order that uh, and Origins Essential Writings because I'm, I'm in the midst of trying to understand Maximus, the confessor. You can't understand Maximus without understanding origin. Right. The, the connections are deep. Um, so also, I'd recommend this translation by John Baer. It's um, okay. the best newest translation. The, the book's a little expensive and hard to come by, uh, which is why I had someone send it to me from British Columbia. But uh, I, I'd recommend that translation. Um, but so I, I feel like I've been knee deep in this. And, and origin is right there at the... Yes the beginning yeah. i mean there are a couple of people who were platonist philosophers who became christians before origin like justin martyr and Nathanagoras and a couple other people but yeah. origin is right there at the origin of sort of uh neoplatonism and its real strong admixture and interactions with christianity mm -hmm. and 
Um, Jacob, who is, who is mentioned by Paul, the, he's um, one of the main Jewish voices in, uh, on Paul's discord. He, he, will, he will say things like, um, you know, I, I see a lot, he, he's, he, was, uh, he almost became a rabbi. He might've even been a rabbi for a while. I'm sorry mm -hmm. if I'm mixing up your uh, uh, biography out there, Jacob. But he was also learned a lot about Kabbalah and the mystic tradition of Judaism. He will probably humbly say that he didn't know very much about this, but he clearly does seem to know a lot about it. But it, for him, he, he will make arguments like, you know, I think that Neoplatonism was just a uh, Kabbalistic lab leak into the pagan culture in Alexandria. <laughs> and I'm not sure if we want to give the pagans credit for this. I think they they swiped our esoteric stuff and uh, and and that and that's what Neoplatonism was. And actually, it was Jewish. Um, and the, the Sufis do the same thing, by the way. The they Sufis talk about Plotinus, and, but you know, Sufism was way before Plotinus. They they they, they make they, they make the same kinds of arguments. Yes. All right, and one could point out that one of the most prominent examples that we have of Middle Platonism is Philo of Alexandria, yes. who yes. is Jewish, and yes. and you know maybe it's just because we have his writings because Christians found him useful, and some of the other pagan. Uh, predecessors to him were, you know, not kept down uh, for the purpose I, of memory. I, I, but I would yeah. make a strong argument. He actually moved. He helps move Platonism towards Neoplatonism. Mm -hmm. uh, the the idea that the ideas are, the idea that the forms are ideas in the mind of God. That's that's a significant move towards Neoplatonism. The idea that um, the patterns of intelligibility have a dynamic, a living structure, and not are not just static, isolated things. That's a very important. I think he contributes. I'm not saying he's a Neoplatonist. That would be false. But I'm mm -hmm. saying he he seems to that move seems to a bit whether or not he's the sole origin of that move. I don't know, but that move is is important. So I think that yeah, I think the the connections are are are, are quite intimate. Yeah, and so I, I kind of the general point that I'm making is is it's not entirely clear whether Neoplatonism belongs to the pagans, whether it belongs to the Jews or whether it belongs to the Christians. And I think the answer is, is that really it was a, a, a trialogue at least among yes. a lot, and maybe even you could say a quadrilogue with a ancient Egyptian kind of mythical, Herm mythical idea. Yeah. yeah, hermeticism. Yeah. It also, it, it's also, it's get, it's also interacting with Gnosticism. We, and, you know, Plotinus even writes uh, one, one of his, his treatises on the Gnostics, uh, and they're and and they're also and you know, and no insult. Paul uses some language that people have clearly identified as Gnostics. There were powers and principality language, uh, so he seems to have encountered that too. I'm not I'm not saying he's a Gnostic. Don't, mm -hmm. don't, don't, I'm not making that move. That's ridiculous. You're saying Paul but, of Tarsus, right? Because yes, right. Yeah. Paul Vanderclay is. But, yeah, Paul Vanderclay is not beyond the uh, Christian Reformed Inquisition. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I meant Paul of Tarsus. Sorry, Paul. Oh, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing a lot. I'm doing a lot of uh, indirect. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I do think what, um, yeah. That's exactly what I, I think I want to agree with, like in a deep way. Um, that's why I was trying to invoke this notion. I don't like, first, first of all, Neoplatonism, and this is Paul Vanderclay's excellent point. It, it, it doesn't, it, like, it doesn't start and stop with Plotinus. It doesn't even, you know, start with Plotinus and end with Proclus or, or Damasius or anything like that. 
um, and, 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 and it's going off in, at times in a pagan direction, in parallel with a Christian direction, in parallel with, the, uh, yeah, I, I'm not proposing any sort of straight like, like that. I, 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 I hope, I, 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 well, thank you for pointing, if I, thank you for pointing that out because that's, that's something that should be clarified. I was emphasizing the fact that it seemed to have this particular power of entering into deep reciprocal reconstruction. So I think when Neoplatonism and Christianity meet, I think it's like a genuine marriage, reciprocal reconstruction. The Neoplatonism is changed and Christianity is changed and both towards their betterment, I would say, by the way, um, very much a dialogical process. They both get to places they couldn't get to on their own. But I, but, but I want to say that I would, I would be, I, I, I would be prepared to make the same claim about when it enters into reciprocal reconstruction with Islam or with Judaism. And, and so I think try, I think what you're pointing to is exactly what I want to say. I'm not, I'm not billiard ball model. I'm, I, you're, hitting, you're hitting a chicken and egg problem, and I'm saying that's exactly the phenomena I want to highlight. That they they're capable. It seems to have this functionality of doing this right with with very profoundly developed systems of thought and practice, including science, the science of its day, the science of the 15th and 16th century, and the science of the early 20th century. That is what I'm proposing as it's a special appeal. So this is explicitly also why we can't just go back to wherever we throw a dart in history and say, let's go back to that, because it's exactly its capacity for reciprocal reconstruction. I like the Neoplatonism of Erigena much more than I do of Proclus, for example. I think Erigena gets much, much better, the emergence and the emanation. But, uh, and uh, for similar reasons, I like Maximus better than I do uh, uh, like, uh, like, 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 like Porphyry or something, somebody like that. That, that's, that's the phenomenon I'm trying to put my finger on. So, uh, sorry, I don't mean to be insulting. I know, you know, I know sort of historical precedence is important for Christianity. It's part of your grammar of authenticity. I, 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 I I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to denigrate that. I'm trying to sort of say, can we sidestep that and say, no, no, I don't think we can determine that for the reasons Sam just said, and that's exactly what I want. I want something that is, its history is a history of dynamic re reciprocal reconstruction. It by very nature is dialogical and it, therefore it profoundly grounds and affords dialogos. So that's how I would wanna, wanna respond, if mm -hmm. that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And so part of, I think part of my response, and I don't even necessarily mean this as a critique, John, I bet that you'll probably agree with a lot of what I'm going to say, is that I kind of view Neoplatonism Neo playing the, the role almost sort of like machine code does in a computer, yeah. but that it still needs a programming language kind of on top of it. It's <laughs> almost like meta theology or, or something like that, or a, a structure that can bridge between theology and philosophy that you go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, I was going to use a metaphor you had come very close to when you were talking about different languages, which is uh, something like with lots of caveats around it from for the cognitive scientists who might be watching, please. <laughs> okay, 
something like Chomsky's Universal Grammar. I've read a couple of really good books where people have said, maybe there's kind of a universal grammar of intelligibility and a universal grammar of spirituality and possibly they, they tremendously overlap or they exact from each other. And I think that's a very, very reasonable kind of proposal. So if that's what you're saying, I think something like that, uh, very mm -hmm. much like that. You see, what's interesting is Neoplatonism was Neoplatonism needs some. I, so yes. this is deep agree. It needs some. So even within what you could call paganism, it it, it it's looking around and it it glums on to the Greek myth and then it does all this work to try and salvage right the 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 the, 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 the Greek civic religion right and make it much more personally transformative. Or it hits something and we don't know what in Egypt and becomes hermeticism, mm -hmm. um, right? Um, it I, needs particularity. One of the things that Neoplatonism yeah. lacks in its purity is the particularity of an actual kind of religion in the sense that I was talking about, about something that makes and forms and sustains a group. I, I think that's exactly right. So another analogy I would, I would use, where I, and I used it already, is Neoplatonism is at the, at the level of the evolution of evolvability right, of the sort of, whereas, uh, you know, uh, Christianity or Islam is the evolution of traits that fit you to specific environments, historical contexts, uh, you know, traditions of practice, something like that, because I've used that metaphor before, you know, where relevance realization is like evolution, it's a universal process, but that doesn't mean that its products are, a are all homogeneous, in fact, it predicts that the products will, will vary considerably. But it gives us uh, it gives us a meta language from which we can stand back and say, you know why that func that functions by doing this, that functions by doing this, that functions by doing that. But here's why function here's here's the source of functionality itself. It, it kind of makes the, those kinds of moves. That's exactly what I what I want to do. I want to say, okay, right? If we think that there is a shared look, and I think you agree with this, the the evolutionary argument has to agree that. To, to, to whatever degree other religions are surviving and spreading, they also have a profound functionality, right? So can we come, well, like, is there a, a, is there a code, a meta language, a universal language by which we could understand, uh, you know, the, 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 how functionality can connect to reality? Mm -hmm. Because this is the problem with the metaphorical truth argument. The, met the metaphorical well, it functions, but it, but it's like yeah, yeah. But like I said, if you keep truth and power disconnected, your ontology fragments in a deep way. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, and I think I, I think I'm just repeating myself. I'm, I, I apologize. No, no, that that's good. I think that Neoplatonism was sort of helping describe something that was already there, right? It's sort of like we're there. There's structure and variation right yeah, evolution yeah. has this like lots of things have it like music has this like the yes. blues what makes a song a blues song well there's structure but there's also a, a, a seemingly infinite variation of possible blues songs there's yes. something that unites them structure that structure uh, affords variation and that's why you don't just listen to the same blues song over and over again right you know and and in the same way language does that like right you know Chomsky-like uh, grammar. I, I, I know Chomsky is controversial, and I, I, I presume that's why you're putting some caveats before introducing yes. him. But yeah. basically, there's some structure that um, affords the ability to have language, but then there's also lots of variability on that. Yes. And then I made this, I said the same thing. Religion seems to have something like that. 
structure that allows you to be like, well, that's a religion, that's a religion, that's a religion, right? You're recognizing the, the underlying yeah. structure that makes them all the same thing, but there's variation. And that Neoplatonism seemed to be giving propositional articulation to what some of that structure was. Yes. And then once you have done that, that gives you greater clarity and leverage and degrees of freedom to interact with that in a more mindful and knowing way. Yeah, I want to add one thing to that, which is in addition to doing that with religious systems, allow me to use system in a very, yeah, sure, sure. like even organic dynamic way. It is. It was also capable of doing that with philosophy, other philosophies, and the and the best science of its day, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's getting at something deep. It's getting at like it. 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 It's. It. it yeah. It's kind of. It. it it's. 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 It's the, the grammar of intelligibility that is presupposed by both our knowledge projects and our wisdom projects is one way I'm trying to think about it right now, um, and that right that that allows us to say to to read to which. Okay, please, please take this very charitably, because I'm, I'm really exploring this. The degree to which, right, it marries with Christianity is the degree to which it can afford Christianity the ability to go from functionality to ontology, to make claims, right? Now, I understand Christianity was making claims about ontology, but what I mean is making claims that aren't tied to your allegiance to Christianity in order for them to be understood as viable and plausible. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is precisely, I think it's fair to say this is precisely why a lot of people, you know, Augustine and Origen and Pseudo-Dionysus, it's precisely why they take up uh, a Neoplatonism is precisely because it can, it served that, and this is a controversial word, and I mean something more than it has come to mean, but it served that apologetic purpose. It served a way, it made, and this was important to do, it made Christianity intellectually respectable it said no 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 everything you're i mean and you know you can see this in the bible with paul of tarsus right what you're looking for we are the culmination of it augustine yeah. easily presents christianity that way as the continuity and, and the growth of philosophy he doesn't he doesn't present it in, in as far as i can tell in any other way um mm. So that that's what I what I'm trying to, but I'm saying it also can do this for science. It can do it for Islam. Like this is why I'm especially attracted to it, uh, because uh, of this this, this ability. First of all, it's sort of it's I, I want to call it its metafunctionality, its ability to generate functionality, like you've been saying, Sam. And precisely because it is metafunctional, it can bridge between our merely metaphorical truths of functionality and our literal truths of ontology. That's the argument I'm trying to make. And I'm talking way too much. Oh, so I... I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, conversations are not, um, are not evaluated by the balance with which the partners, um, it's, it's not a matter of the number of words, it's a matter of which words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, so C.S. Lewis in a letter to um, one of his one of his dearest friends when Lewis was on the when Lewis was coming into his urn, he was writing to Arthur Greaves. I bumped into this because I used it in a sermon recently. You know, talked about um, real things, and of course, Lewis was uh, deeply <laughs> deeply Platonic. Lewis was a Platonist. Um, 
talk to Arthur Greaves about real things. And when he said real things, he said things such as, you know, an apple is a real thing. And, and in some ways, part of the struggle we, part of the struggle we, we, we work with in this intelligibility, of course, attempts to connect, you know, what I often call in terms of the two registers. Yes, yes. You know, yes. the world above and the world below, heaven and earth. I mean, how yeah. much of this mapping is is just so simply perennial. And <clears throat> part of, you know, intelligibility is, is always going to have to account with history. And history, in a sense, is both the particularity, and I'm glad Sam mentioned that, but yeah. also the recursive, the pattern. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, and the rhythm and the metal melody well yeah and the the event <clears throat> the yeah. event and the um i mean what i'm you know what the video i'm thinking of working on today actually works on your part in that rebel wisdom thing and and pulls that into some northrop fry and then a new testament scholar that has an interesting lecture that someone sent to me but i ideally then what i would imagine is whatever it is in I mean, this is where our labels are always so difficult, yeah. but we'll use Neoplatonism as a sort of a good label to say, okay, this is a this is a bridging label because we can very we can see its relationship to there's something that we've for a very long time been identifying as Neoplatonism that seems to be a bridge between all of these different yeah. functional religions that help individuals and communities map the particular and the recursive yep the well upper and the lower registers and is is something that is functional functionally cohesive for you know for let's say narrative let's say nar narrative navigation because you know what we see with fully formed religions is that they have they 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 sort of have the whole stack you mm -hmm. need you need a narrative you know so again when lewis when lewis became a theist which is in probably for lewis to, to the degree that his 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 Platonism really took hold as opposed yeah, well, to the skepticism. Well, speaking of, of people very strongly influenced by Neoplatonism, C.S. Lewis also loved Neoplatonism and was very aware of all of that stuff. Oh, yes, yes. But so then when Lewis, but Lewis had to, of course, as an individual in history, in time, mm -hmm. recognized that he, he could be an Oxford scholar and be a Neoplatonist and sort of float up here, but he, he recognized that he needed religio. He needed yes, practice. Right. Yeah, yeah, very much. And and so then he looked around and said, okay, well, what's on the menu? And eventually he sort of came to Christianity or Hinduism right. and eventually, eventually opted for Christianity because he said, I wanted something that, that seemed to have the most continuity between the village and the the scholar, you know, for Lewis, of course, being a scholar himself. Um, and so then he would, you know, go to his Anglican church and, you know, sort of grin his, you know, grit his teeth through lousy hymns and substandard <laughs> sermons. And, you know, because, because of course he, uh, it was, or, it was Lewis. had the same problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, but this is, but, 
for for something i mean the whatever the thing we're looking for especially if we're looking for let's say and and we're trying to get at an essence here that can the 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 goal of every either search for the meta meta is always sort of above or kernel which is always below and it's interesting how you know we're not quite sure if we're looking for the kernel or we're looking for the meta <laughs> and and i think that's a that's a good indication that we're looking for something that in fact yeah holds the stack together yes yeah. because each of our lives um has i mean when when c.s lewis says you know real things like um you know not love in general but love between these two people yes um we want something that holds the stack together mm -hmm. so and and people there's huge variability both this way and this way in terms of people's lives but but we want something that's going to hold as big a world as possible. And that, that is both inside of us um, in terms of the capacities we have, but also the community. Yes. So yeah. that the community can, so that's both the internal scaling and then the, the communal scaling. And so, you know, I, I, I like your, I like your proposal john for a variety of reasons and that's why it's okay if you talk more than we do in this conversation because you've presented something bold but it's it's certainly got a lot to say for itself given the history the historical record that we have and yeah. and also you know some of the philosophical credentials that it that it seems to possess so thank you for that paul um every time we, we talk i love you more um, your capacity uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, uh, Mortal Point talks about, you know, contact isn't fusion. And he's right. We, we come into contact without confusion. Um, um, and, and I appreciate that dearly. So I just wanted to take a moment away from the flow and just thank you again. Um, you are, well, all of you are, but you in particular, Paul, uh, you, you're often in my head. I hear your voice, not in some creepy fashion. I hear your voice in my mind and I enter into dialogue with it as I'm trying to think about my ideas. I just wanted to thank you for that. Yeah. Um, two things about that. I think that's right. Um, and so, and, and, and take this sort of half jokingly. I don't think I'm a pure Neoplatonist. So like I say, I'm not, I'm not nostalgic and I'm not utopic, right? Um, and I, I recognize what both you and Sam are saying, right? That Neoplatonism needs something. That's why Iamblichus introduces yeah, yeah. theurgia and all of this stuff. But also that theurgia is directly taken up by Pseudo-Dionysius. So again, it's the chicken and egg thing flowing around. Uh, in fact, I think we should stop calling him that. I think we should call him Dionysius the Areopagite or however, uh, whatever. Areopagite, I think. Areopagite, yeah. From the Areopagus, yeah. Because they're now making a very good case that he's writing like under pseudonyms the way Kierkegaard did, right? That's not a fraud, it's a practice. It is a it is a contemplative practice. Uh, Gregory Shaw, who wrote that great book on Iamblichus, 
has made that argument and other people have too. And I think that's a, a really good way of understanding. Although I will point out the Eastern Orthodox Church does kind of officially think that Dionysius the Areopagite was that person mentioned in the book yes. of Acts. And well, okay. I'll just say I'm a little skeptical of but making the too Orthodox strong of a do that thing. You know, the more I hang out with the Orthodox, it's like, yeah, you know. They do funny things. <laughs> I won't hold it against them. Well, I want to say something about that in a sec. But what I was going to say is, and this is the, I, I sort of consider myself a Zen Neoplatonist uh, because I, I mean, I combine Taoism and Buddhism, and that's how you get Chan. And then it gets, to, and then when it moves to Japan, it interacts with Shinto, a religion, and becomes Zen. And so I'm sort of a Zen Neoplatonist because I, I recognize that's me acknowledging your point, Sam, and I think your point too. Paul, that this this can't just be sort of a philosophical structure. It has to become much more what Ado talked about, philosophy of way of life. And as soon as you do that, it becomes inherently religious. Just like it's you, you really can't say if Stoicism's a philosophy or a religion. It 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 hangs out right in that place in between. And of course, Stoicism has a huge impact on Neo, the development of Neoplatonism as well. The second thing is. And, and again, given my argument, this shouldn't be taken as any way denigrating or insulting. I think part of the reason for the attraction of Eastern Orthodoxy right now is because of its Neoplatonism. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that, right, the fact that it has great art, and, right, and liturgy attached to, a, you know, a pretty clear historical preservation and development. I mean, Maximus, is one of the great Neoplatonists. He really is. Um, um, and I, 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 I hope that's not offensive to, uh, to Eastern Orthodox. <laughs> but Yeah, I, but I don't think they would. And one of the other ingredients of Neoplatonism, and you see this even er in early Middle Platonism, people like Numenius, is allegorical interpretations. Yeah, exactly. I, I, thank you. I was just going to mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. Jonathan's strategy, and again, this is how he is more radical than people realize. Jonathan's strategy is exactly that strategy, the Neoplaton. And you see it also in Philo. Philo yeah. is already starting to do it too, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, and this is very much a theurgic, Right, Neoplatonic kind of thing. And it's um, how Neoplatonism is able to integrate scriptural traditions into exactly. it itself. Yeah. But it's also how it, it but it also affords scriptural trend scriptural traditions being taken into liturgical practice via Lexio Divina and other things. Again, I keep pointing out it's this two-way reciprocal reconstruction going back and forth continually. And I think one of the things. And and, and again, we're, we're careful enough. We've said this from the beginning. This isn't saying that Eastern Orthodoxy is right or true or better than right what you have, Sam, or what you have, Paul. Who, who am I to make any any ridiculous pronouncements like that? I'm not in, I just do not have what it takes, and I don't think anybody does, but I'm not saying that. I'm trying to explain just a specific thing right now. I, it, it's been noted in this corner of the internet that it seems to be, uh, you know, eminently attractive to people right now. I hear so many that people, I went to atheism and then I came back via Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. um, and I do not think, I'm proposing to both of you, that is also not a coincidence. That is also speaking to the argument that I'm making here. Yeah, yeah. I I, I hear what you're saying and I agree. Um, I, I should talk to Jonathan sometime, Pejo sometime. That would be, that would be fun. But um, so, one thing, hopefully this won't seem like taking the conversation in too big of a different turn. I'll kind of 
circle it back to, to keep the thread going in a similar direction. One person that I want to mention um, is Alvin Plattinga, the, the pride yes. and joy of Calvin yeah. College. Um, and so he, he had a, an argue, the evolutionary argument against naturalism that mm -hmm. I think is very important. And Alvin Plattinga was sort of, he, he was kind of there towards the, uh, he, he was in that more uh, what do you call courtroom style analytic dialogue, philosophy uh, true, dialogue true. between yeah. uh, Christianity and atheism at the time yeah. and yeah. like when he's talking with Daniel Dennett um, yeah. right that's sort of they didn't do a very good job talking to each other but oh. um, <laughs> but, but th that was sort of like Sam Harris and William Lane Craig were sort of popular apologetics and kind of at the super academic philosophical level was planning and Daniel Dennett yeah. um, and I think that uh, not to try and bring things back into the courtroom style, but I do think that Planninga made an extremely important point in the evolutionary argument against naturalism that is kind of part of how I think that the, we were talking about the the separation between the procedural and the propositional, right? Like mm -hmm. religion could be propositionally true, but uh, or could be procedurally correct or functional at least but yeah. propositionally incorrect in that yeah. it defends its procedures with the propositions. The propositions are just floating out in falsehood, yeah. mythological, yeah. Uh, you know, untethered to reality land, but they generate procedures that are, are functional. And what uh, Planninga said to that was, well, wait a minute, you naturalists, you guys think that your minds are the product of evolution. Mm -hmm. And if you think that all that evolution is acting on is procedure and that there is a disconnect between propositions and procedure, then evolution would not generate true propositions or even the ability to generate true propositions. It only cares about procedure. And so therefore there is no reason for anyone to think that any of their propositions are connected to you know, uh, you know, propositional base reality or something like that. And so if you're going to make this split, then it's going to undercut the variability. You kind of alluded to this earlier, John, that it, it, it is, that, that would be a skepticism that would shoot itself in its own foot. Because yes. if, if there is no connection between propositional correctness and procedural correctness, then our brains have just evolved to deceive ourselves in a way that causes us to act properly. And so nothing that we could ever say or think could be very trustworthy. Um, and, and so that there needs to be some connection there. But Alvin Planninga, in his own sort of Dutch Calvinist kind of way, didn't give a very Neoplatonic answer, I would say, to that. He sort of gave the kind of the presuppos presuppositionalist sort of answer kind of thing. And uh, talk, what, what uh, base, basic factor, uh, properly, things being properly basic, right? That was sort of his, yeah, yeah. Yes, his yes. things and stuff like that. But I, I think that this is one of those things where Neoplatonism can help, I think, give a more thorough answer to why yes. there is yeah. a connection between yes. propositional correctness and procedural correctness. And it's sort of like what I was talking about with, you know, polar bears and Mount Everest and, and forms and stuff like that. Yes. And, yeah. and that, that it has to be that there is a truth between what gets embodied 
And the, the success of an embodied thing is a revelation about truth itself. Yes, right? well said, well said. And, and that this is why I think that, you know, even if I can't, you know, th there's still some other perhaps shortcomings to the evolutionary argument for Christianity, but it would be that it would be trying to use Neoplatonism to try and make this argument for the connection between embodied purpose and the structure of reality itself and the conformity of our, when we describe the structure of something that's working, when we describe that accurately, we are conforming ourselves to that structure in a way that, you know, can bridge between the propositional and the procedural. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Um, I, I, I was going to respond to Plantinga the way you already did and mm -hmm. say, um, yeah, that argument's right. Uh, what Plantinga doesn't acknowledge, and I don't remember if Dennett brings it up, is that whole argument was also taking place within cognitive science. It also, it's also in the air with people like Donald Hoffman. That's basically his argument, right? And, and he's certainly not advocating uh, for Christianity, although I think when you press him, uh, he turns into a Neoplatonist. So I had a, a really good discussion with Yosha Bach on this, um, and I got to the point when I said, we, we, we did a very long, genuine dialogus, really. Uh, uh, I, was, I was quite impressed with him, uh, but we went through it. And if you get a chance, watch it. It's on the Theory of Everything channel. And I basically got to a point where I said, well, you're a Platonist. That, that's your actual ontology. And when you mean simulation, you mean it in a platonic sense, not just in a matrix sense, although it, the matrix is probably neoplatonic, <laughs> but, right? But you know what I mean, right? And he, he acknowledged that. He said, yeah, that's probably right. Um, and, and I think that's what would happen if you pressed on Plantinga. His basic presuppositions, I mean, Collingwood said it, when you get to your, your basic presuppositions, you're doing metaphysics. That's what metaphysics is. And, what, and, the, pre, the, and the meta presupposition is that, some, that the, the grammar of your intelligibility, because that's what your presuppositions do, ha, must connect in some important way, be in contact, not homogeneous, but conform to the structures of reality, or all you have is solipsistic skepticism, which undermines the science that you used to make the bloody argument in the first place, yeah. right? Uh, and so I totally agree with all of that. This is why I've been saying, right, um, um, that um, naturalism is not, naturalism has to re-understand itself, not only as that which is derivable from the sciences, but that which is necessarily presupposed by the sciences, including cognitive science. And that leads me to the point you made. What, one of the things we're, we're, we're now realizing, I would argue, is the centrality of embodiment to cognition and to making sense. And this is one of the ways in which I explicitly reject classical ancient Neoplatonism because it had a horrible attitude towards the body. And that is one area in which I think it got things wrong. I think it confused the body with the having mode, and it made all kinds of confusions around this that are no longer relevant or pertinent. I think they do more harm than good. And that, for example, part of Neoplatonism needs to be left behind. Um, so very much, I, I'm in agreement with what you said. I think if you press on things like Plantin, not things, sorry, you, if you, I, I meant his argument, but if you press on people like Plantinga about their arguments, you'll get to a platonic, Neoplatonic kind of thing. Um, and then I think one of, the th one of the things we're realizing that we've always, I, we're, 
propositions presuppose the space of procedural knowing. That's how we move between our propositions or else you get the, you, you try to fill all the space between propositions with propositions, almost like the Neoplatonists trying to fill all the spaces in their ontology. No, procedures are not propositions. They're the space with, it, with we, how we move between sets of propositions. But we also move between skills within perspectives. And we also move between perspectives within identities. And I think we're, what's happening right now, I'm getting to the point, is we are, I think, uncovering, back to the four kinds of knowing, we're uncovering how deep the propositional network is, how deeply down it goes. And I would therefore argue that Neoplatonism talked about these, but we could do a much better job than ancient, Neoplaton, ancient, ancient Neoplatonism did about disclosing the depth of our presuppositional network. And, and by the way, even saying that's hard because it, it, the presuppositions are not propositional, right? But mm -hmm. that's a, the language I, I have to use, right? And that that depth, we like, we better have faith, hope, and love to invoke uh, the, the theological virtue that that connects in some important way with the unfolding of reality, or we're not, we're, we're trapped. We're trapped in an inescapable solipsism or skepticism that won't allow us to do the science. And then we get in this weird thing that the science took us to this, and then we discovered, like, we, it's got to be, it's got to be that intelligibility conforms to reality. Um, but we can't go back to the old way because the way the old way we did that is well the structure of my experience and the structure of the cosmos are just identical uh we're at the center and everything's going around. like that doesn't work anymore we have to but that doesn't mean we can't recover or inventio which i think we're doing a new model of how that conformity works the fact that the old model and that's what this is some some of the things wrong with the old neoplatonism doesn't work anymore doesn't mean a new way isn't possible i think what we're trying to do if it, i mean among other things in this corner of the internet to quote Sevilla's, and now i think it's we have, she's even hashtagged it right a uh, phrase is we're trying to work out what does that new model of conformity look like i, I put it to you paul that that's a lot of what you're trying to do and, and i don't mean trying in the sense of feeling i think trying in, in the sense of making you know careful progress well, I think, Sam, your your phrase, the success of, of an embodied thing is a revelation about truth itself. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you could take a statement like that and, you know, obviously for Christians who, who want to base their belief on the resurrected body of Christ, that, that there's, you know, it's it's the revelation of an embodied, you know, it's the, the embodied thing is a revelation about truth itself. The in word some ways, became flesh. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. The word becomes yes. flesh, yes. the incarnation, but, but science as well. I mean, the yeah. whole premise of science is that it is science. The, um, the study of, again, there's the individual, you know, the particular and the recursive or the pattern, um, both of those things are revelation about truth itself and the fact that perhaps one of the things that we find in science mm -hmm. is the attempt to bridge or, or to somehow have intelligibility and i love you know i love because that is you know what we're talking about here john and as i think about you know your role in this little corner 
you know, you have you have really succeeded in in providing a grammar for all of us to talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. But the the to to find the intelligibility between the recursive and the individual, you know, one of the things that I, you know, when so of course I was raised. You know, Calvin was the place where I studied, and so someone like Plantinga. Um, of course, influenced didn't, all didn't of you, the... Didn't you have either Alvin or Cornelius as one of your professors? Or his brother, Neil, Neil. was... was Isn't um, his full name Cornelius planning? Yes, that? yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And so he was the, um, he was my systematics prof at the seminary, and he was my advisor for a while. Um, and Neil is a, Neil is a, that, that whole family is, is an astounding family. Their father, their father taught psychology at Calvin. Uh, my mother took him and said, you know, she didn't like him very much, but that's, that's that. Um, and, and, and that, but that, that also goes to, to, to the fact of when you have a school, it is not the, it, it is, a school is to the degree that we talk about a school as purely an upper register theoretical thing that school is diminished from the potentiality of all of the embodiment that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And, and so the intelligibility, the intelligibility between the particular and the recursive mm-hmm. is, is absolutely fundamental before, you know, so I had, one of the things that I noted with, with Lewis was that in many ways, Lewis made the same argument as, Plantinga about, you know, the argument that you just laid out. And in fact, Lewis attributes it before him. That argument has been has been moving around for quite a while. And one of the things that Lewis gets into is history itself, depending on your, your level of analysis, is on one hand always the recursive. And, mm-hmm. and science, of course, is the scientific method is honed to 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 bring the recursive into the upper register in terms of intelligibility. That mm-hmm. is what science is for. Science struggles with the particular, mm-hmm. the, the, the element that is outside the data set. And so, of course, what science is always trying to do is, is, is reach out and grow to say, okay, where is the, where is the, how does the particular fit into this data set? Right. And, but then, of course, Lewis goes on to make the point that all of history is a particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, I mean, there is, there has never been, nor will there ever be another, now we have to use labels and names because that's the best we can do, a John Verveke. I mean, mm-hmm. he is a particular. Now he is also full of recursion and just layers yeah. and layers and layers of recursion. But, and so we're always within this dynamic and so that I think lends to the um, whatever whatever on earth, because of course Gnosticism and John, you've articulated this well, and others like David Bentley Hart have been articulating it recently too. Whatever we mean by Gnosticism, I, I think your point, Sam, basically validates that um, the embodied particular um, may not be excluded because the because we have been we have it we have not been able to necessarily 
and fold it within the recursive patterns that that are very legitimate and that we see. But in that sense, you know, reality, there's always suchness. Yes. There's always moreness. Yes. So, yes. Um, so no, I, I, this has been, I mean, this whole conversation, this dialogos this morning has been super, super helpful. And in, in terms of, okay. So when John talks about Neoplatonism, hmm, it's not, it's not just the, the Neoplatonism of Plotinus. No. And it's, it's, there's, there's something that we're pointing to with this word Neoplatonism that is, is somehow embedded in Christianity and, and Judaism and, and, and many other, it's, and it's embedded in, it's embedded in the patterns of people who will never hear or have this word Neoplatonism be intelligible to them. And so the striving is to get at, okay, where is, what is, and, and we don't even know what, we struggle to know what intelligibility itself is. Yeah, it's my whole career. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a, but a worthy thing to spend one's life pursuing. Yes. Um, I think that point, again, is very well said. I'm going to say something here, and it's making myself vulnerable into misinterpretation. Um, but in, very, in many, many ways, I prefer Christian Neoplatonism over pagan Neoplatonism. Now, I have a special love for Plotinus because I think he's just, Plotinus is, he's the first great synthesizer. He makes the synthesis of Augustine possible, of Erigena, of Maximus, of Origen, right? He, he makes it possible because, uh, and, but, but uh, I really, I mean, I really, really love Christian Neoplatonism um precisely because of those two things and more but let's say the the christian neoplatonism really it's also uh because of the contrast with the gnostics really embraces embodiment right and, and it, it but it struggles and it's uh, and, mm -hmm. and i'm not saying it's christianity perfect. always tugged neoplatonism down in a certain sense and exactly. forced it to take materiality and embodiment more seriously than the pagan version often felt inclined to do. I, I, and I totally acknowledge that and I appreciate it and I admire it. So that's clear. Well, I think that Christianity is still struggling with the relationship between embodiment, incorporation and incarnation because it invokes all three of these uh, sort of- What do you mean by incorporation? We are all the body of Christ. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You say those three things again, John, I didn't get them down. Embodiment, incorporation and incarnation right right because they're related i mean the incarnation was some kind of embodiment but presumably it has a kind of particularity to it but like to your point paul it has to somehow have a profound particularity and a profound universality right uh and and, and so right and then like i said incorporation which is somehow distributed cognition has a distributed body that is somehow also re related to the embodiment of each and the incarnation of the logos. And, and I'm not going to say anything more. I'm just saying that that's, I see that very much something that is still like trying to get worked out, especially right now. Jonathan, for example, is talking a lot about incorporation and its relationship to incarnation and he's Jonathan Pajot, right? And yeah. so I see that. So, but Christianity does that and, and you're, it anchors uh, it anchors Neoplatonism to the earth and to the fertility and fecundedness of the earth. 
totally. and the goodness of the earth too and the goodness well that's what i was trying to allude to yeah the yeah. goodness of the earth precisely because it's generative beauty um but also um because of christianity's ability and you can see platonism neoplatonism struggling with this it's trying to socrates started this and you can see plato and it's and they keep trying to stretch eros and transform it and they're doing it uh, but then christianity comes in and says you know what you're stretching towards you're stretching towards agape that's what it is and it says the logos and the agape are what and 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 i think that's that was an innovation that neoplatonism was seeking but pagan neoplatonism was seeking and was couldn't quite generate it within itself um and so um those two things i think make make me appreciate and spend more time in christian neoplatonism than i do nowadays in in pagan neoplatonism uh, mm -hmm. for that reason one more thing to, to get back to the point paul made the point i made in rebel wisdom and i've made it in another uh I think I was, who else was, I can't remember who I was talking to about this, I, I apologize. Well, about the hermeneutics of suspicion versus the hermeneutics of beauty, right? The hermeneutics of suspicion is, right, it, it's born from the godfathers of postmodernity. This is a recurs point, it comes out of Freud and Marx and Nietzsche, right? And they are the, so now what we do is we suspect everything. There's a, there's a hidden motive, there's a secret agenda, there's a conspiracy. And the moment of truth is the moment where we uncover and we reveal, j'accuse, where we reveal, right, the conspiracy. Uh, and yeah, the propositions are trying to deceive you into getting to you to do the procedure that it wants. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and this is prevalent. And then the point that, and the point has been, it, it's, it goes all the way back deeply into Plato, and you can see it running through um, to into Hegel and Marlo Ponti. Marlo Ponti makes it really plain. He says, pay attention to. You cannot point to something as an illusion unless you're standing in something you take to be real. Illusions are parasitic on right on ex, on experiences, yes. meaningfully structured experience that you take to be in conformity to reality. Right. It, it makes no sense to say it's all an illusion. That's like saying everything's tall. Right, like, no like when Daniel Dennett says consciousness is an illusion. Well- and Who's been an illusion to and where is the illusion happening? <laughs> yes, right? is an illusion a conscious experience? Yes. Yes, yeah, it's like, there's no, uh, there's no illusion in physics in the sense of an ontological entity. There's mass and energy. Oh, and look, there's illusion and it has, you measure it. Like that's ridiculous, okay? Yeah, all of those moves I think are like mistaken. So the hermeneutics of suspicion is the idea that appearances are deceptive and distractive, right? And distorting, but they're dependent on the idea, not, not the idea, that's exactly the wrong word. They're dependent on the disclosure, right? The phenomenological realization of appearances as disclosing reality, as not being deceptive, as not being distractive, as not being distortive. And I put it to you, and this is DC Schindler, another Neoplatonist Christian, by the way, his proposal that that is our, should be the proper understanding of beauty, right? That beauty is when appearance discloses the depth of realness. And can beauty be hijacked? Anything that like anything can be hijacked. That's not a reason for rejecting it, right? You right. So, and, and we have to remember, and this is Hans' critique in Saving Beauty. We've reduced beauty to the smooth, to the pleasing, 
If you look in the, like you read Plotinus, Plotinus says beauty is joyous, wondrous, and distressing. It should shock you. It distresses you. And, you know, more modern thinkers about, more recent thinkers, I should say, not modern, more recent thinkers like Scari about beauty, right? The hermeneutics of beauty is more primordial and grounding than the hermeneutics of suspicion. It is dependent on the hermeneutics of beauty. And I think this is one of the great claims of Neoplatonism. I've been reading a lot of theology and that Baltazar, Schindler, Clark, all of these people, and it's no coincidence that they're deeply Neoplatonic, are pointing theology to beauty as where theology needs to go right now. That's not me imposing on them. That is what they are talking about. And they're opening, like, and, and you know, I'm reading Baltazar's book on Maximus, trying to feed two birds with one scone, right? And like, like this stuff, this, the hermeneutics of beauty is exactly what I'm talking about. Beauty is when the we, we have good phenomenological reason to believe that our, our, our appearances are disclosing reality, our attempts to make sense, phenomenologically make sense, not just conceptually, lived make sense are in contact with reality. I'm reading Meek's book on contact with reality. She's integrating Polanyi and Merleau-Ponty and DC Schindler. And this, this is exactly the same point again and again and again. And I think Neoplatonism, one more advocacy for it, right? gives us a place where we can properly talk about reprioritizing the hermeneutics of beauty. It's not, by the way, this does not eradicate the hermeneutics of suspicion. You need it because there are conspiracies and there are cabals <laughs> yes. and there is propaganda, there is bullshit, but it's to properly reorient us to say, no, no, but that is ultimately always dependent on a hermeneutics of beauty and Neoplatonism. And it's no coincidence that all these modern theologians are current. I, don't, I want to stop using that adjective modern. All these recent theologians are using Neoplatonism to do that because Neoplatonism makes that argument repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. That's the ancient argument against the Gnostics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another a, an evolutionary argument for beauty, a, a common discussion in evolutionary biology now is like, well, maybe does evolution evolve faster than pure random chance, right? Because, yeah, and it seems to evolve way faster. And, um, you know, the, the, the neo-intelligent design people out there are, like to point out the mathematical problems that it doesn't seem like we've had enough time for random chance to do the job that it seemingly is attributed to have accomplished. And so the answer to that is, well, who says that evolution can't be faster than random chance, but what tools would it have to go faster than random yes. chance? Yes. And one of them seems to be beauty. Like, yeah. why are birds so beautiful, right? And of multi-faceted you know, faceted beauty is it seems to be that one of the tools that birds use to evolve more quickly is both to get um, good at perceiving beauty and embodying beauty, right? Sexual, yes. sexual selection takes both those things. You need to get good at perceiving the, the thing that you want and embodying the thing that you want. Often the female is the selector and the perceiver and the male is the embodiment and demonstration of beauty. And seemingly that seems to you know, be so useful that birds waste extraordinary amounts of energy on being beautiful, even at the sacrifice of being fit in other ways, like being a red cardinal is not a particularly <laughs> useful thing. Uh, 
being a, a turkey with a giant, you know, tail fan is not, you know, useful, except in the fact that it communicates beauty and beauty seems to communicate something deep about fitness. And why would that be the case if it wasn't the, the if beauty weren't fundamental to the revelation of truth that comes through embodiment, like I was talking about? Exactly. The argument that's made, and many people think they're, they're, they're sort of explaining beauty away, is that, no, no, what? We, we're attracted to these features that disclose health and vitality and cognitive flexibility. We find humor beautiful, which is really weird. Yeah. Really weird. But Musical because, talent, you know. Yeah. But all the, but why? Because the, what beauty is, is the appearances are disclosing the reality of the being. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's what these arguments are actually presupposing. Can it get hijacked? It can. Right. You can have you have creatures that mimic and they're not really, et cetera. But that only works. That's and I, pun intended. That's parasitic right. on yes. beauty actually disclosing. Yes. Right. Yes. Functioning to disclose the depths of some particular being, but also environments and perhaps even the world in general. Mm -hmm. Yes, I should get going soon, my friends. Yes, I should. Yeah, I really sure. should get going soon. <laughs> um, yes, well, this, this has been really great. Um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll give you guys a chance for closing thoughts. One topic I would maybe propose for a next future conversation is something that I think that we need to talk a little bit more about is um, pluralism and yeah. particularism and Christianity's exclusiveness and its relationship to other religious traditions and and that whole topic we we mentioned it a couple times but i think that that is a uh a, a an important topic that that maybe could be a, a teaser for a future conversation and with that said I'll, I'll i'll pass the mic to you guys if you guys want to have some closing thoughts before we depart go ahead paul i well, went again first. I, I i've i've just been you know john you've again and again proven to be a you know, just a terrific conversation partner. And, and, you know, you, whether you're, whether you're doing things on video that I'm not on the same video with, or, um, or we're speaking together, um, I, I, you continue to impress me in, in how you pull things out and draw them together with an immense amount of generosity. And I've, again, it's, it's amazing how often I come out of a conversation with you, a dialogos with you that I feel that, it, you know, I've just been able to, um, I don't even quite know the, the metaphor to use, but, but um, things, things, the, the ball has been moved forward. And, and I also I'm amazed at how part of what we're playing with in this little corner of the internet is whether none of us can possibly watch all of each other's videos. That's true. <laughs> But at the same time, we have sort of a, not a courtroom, but a courtyard yes. in which in, in these strange YouTube embodiments, we are in fact moving the ball forward. And what one of the, if, if YouTube endures for however long it does, um, you know, someone in the future might go back and look at our first conversation and then another yeah. conversation yeah. and another conversation. Yeah. And and so, again, I see, you know, the, the, the particular and the recursive. And so, you know, every single one of our conversations are particular and you and I are particularities um, with a degree of overlap and a degree of disconnect. But um, along the way, uh, we've, I'm, I just feel tremendously grateful for 
having the opportunity to to get to play as we've been playing. And so I, I just want to thank you both. Well, I, I again, I want to thank uh, both of you. Um, it's always a great pleasure. Uh, um, and I think there's often beauty when you and I talk, Paul, and that kind of beauty that draws us deeper. Um, and Sam, this is now the fourth time I've been in direct interaction with you, and I, uh, I really appreciate it. Um, you brought a tremendous amount of insight um, into uh, this. And I found genuine dialogues for me. I found I was getting to places in what I was thinking and seeing that I couldn't have got to on my own. And, um, and I, I really appreciate the, 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 the collective reflection. Um, I'm happy to come back, uh, Sam, for your proposed conversation. Um, I think it's... Um, I think it's a conversation that is fraught and therefore has to take place within established fellowship. Yes. Uh, because if the fellowship isn't there, it quickly polarizes people. And um, I suspect, and I aspire that we will, of course, not, we won't agree, but I think we will, again, to use Paul's nice metaphor, I don't know which game we're playing, but uh, uh, we'll move the ball <laughs> forward. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, and I think, I, I, I suspect, although the, not the hermeneutics of suspicion, but I suspect that that ability to move the ball forward, the enactment of that is going to be more of the answer to the pluralism, exclusivism problem than any proposition that we, are, that we manage to propose. Um, and I'd like to see if we can bring that aspect into the conversation. Um, like I said, it's... It, uh, maybe the real existence of the courtyard is the answer to that problem rather than some final theoretical conclusion about it. Uh, it might be that we, we could, I mean, this is a Tillich or a Kierkegaardian point. I'm reading a lot of Kierkegaard and about Kierkegaard right now. Carlyle's book on Kierkegaard, just like her book on Spinoza, uh, is, was astonishingly brilliant. Spinoza's religion, I keep recommending it. Yeah. Her book on Kierkegaard of uh, uh, a restless heart or something. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Because uh, Chris and I are going to do uh, a series on Socrates and Kierkegaard uh, very soon. Uh, we're working on it right now. But Kierkegaard's proposal that the, the answer to many of these is to live out a kind of tension, a kind of paradox that we can't, if we seek to resolve it, we always end up deforming something and making ourselves inhumane in a profound way. I'm not saying that I'm saying that's just uncritically right, but I want that perhaps brought into that conversation, that proposal. Obviously we're gonna discuss and there's gonna be lots of theory flying around, but I'm wondering if the enactment of the courtyard is how we properly respond to that issue rather than saying, here is the blah that will like, prove once and for all that Christianity is the one true religion or prove once and for all that there is no like blah 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 that kind of mm -hmm. thing yeah. I, I mean this this is a way of trying to develop an idea I've had before about you know a, a different model uh, of, of the evolution of relevance realization rather than trying to come to some final place that's why also not utopia not nostalgia but also not utopia um, right so no I, 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 I would like to perhaps uh, suggest we bring in, um, if it doesn't rankle too much, the, uh, another innovation that, Neoplat that Christian Neoplatonism made 
in the hands of Gregory of Nyssa, I believe, and taken up by Maximus of Epictetus, um, that, that we're not going to get to a resting place. We open into a God is the, uh, the eternal affordance of endless self-transcendence kind of model. Um, uh, maybe. Yeah. Anyways, that though, so great pleasure being here. Uh, definitely committed to making, uh, 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 making it back here uh, to another Dialogos about that topic um, and making a request that we consider the enactment um, as a significant part of the answer uh, to that as to any particular propositions we might come to. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say thank you. That was, uh, that was really beautiful, John. John, I feel like I've I've learned a lot from you. Um, you you've helped give me uh, good vocabulary to articulate these things. And also, I, you're one of the uh, conversation partners I most look forward to. And I will even admit makes me a little bit nervous. I've told you that before. Um, not <laughs> I, 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 I'm getting more comfortable and I don't think the nervousness is any really thing that it, it's just that you're capable of stretching me more than almost any other conversation partner I have. And that's both exciting and a little bit terrifying. And uh, I also want to thank you, Paul. Paul, probably almost certainly without you, I never would have started a YouTube channel. I never would have had the guts or even the idea to do this. And you've modeled so much of this for me that um, I'm, I'm just really grateful. So uh, I'll, I'll leave that there. All right. Uh, thank you, everyone, and I'll stop the video here.